0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia Podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. I'm your host Greg Bluestein. And today once again, I'm joined by my colleague Tamar Hallerman, our Washington correspondent, who's been in Georgia with us the last week or so. Tamar came down to help out with election coverage, and today we'll be talking about the next nine weeks. Run off, run <laughs> off, run off. <laughs> the dreaded word that no Republicans or Democrats want to hear, but there's sure a lot of them in Georgia <laughs> And
1: the word that all my friends in D.C. will walk up to me and be like, what? what do you guys do in Georgia? I don't understand. You just had a race.
0: Yeah, and this nine-week <laughs> thing is weird because it used to just be a three weeks, uh, but a federal court ruling uh, a few years ago aimed at helping military absentee ballots get counted correctly and properly and, and on time change this whole thing and that's why we have instead of a three week quick you know burst runoff we have a nine week and uh, and basically uh, you get to a runoff if no candidate gets to 50% plus one so if no candidate gets a majority of the vote there is a runoff to decide the nominee or in a general election the winner of the race and, you know, off, it happens a lot more in, in a primary because there's a lot more candidates from each party. But in, in general, it happens sometimes, too, especially if a libertarian candidate or a third-party candidate gets like 3 or 4% of the vote and, you know, forces it all to a December runoff.
1: You know what I call it, Greg? Job security. Job security. For political reporters. That's yeah, great. Yeah, it gives
0: us nine more weeks to write about another heated race. And really, for candidates, it gives them – the fact that it's nine weeks, it gives them some breathing room. And a lot of people would have said last year in the sixth district race if Karen Handel – Only had three weeks to run against John Ossoff, she would have lost because her campaign was so much smaller than his. It was so, 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 um, had so much fewer, less funding. And, and they needed some time to build up and ratchet up because it was a national campaign. Yeah.
1: And that helped give time for all those national groups to kind of come down, set up shop, um, you know, get their volunteers out knocking on doors. So I think that really did help her.
0: Yeah. Blanketing the airways, blanketing the streets. So we have that exact same thing on the Republican side. Democrats largely avoided these very painful runoffs. There's some down-ticket races with runoffs, but um, there was only two candidates in the governor's race, and, of course, Stacey Abrams basically steamrolled Stacey Evans. I mean, seventy, but it was a 53-point victory. And in the lieutenant governor's race and the secretary of state's race, um, Sarah Riggs and Miko won with a, beat her one opponent, and uh, John Barrow avoided runoff against two opponents.
1: Narrowly, narrowly, narrowly.
0: Narrowly, by the skin of his teeth. But he still avoided one. So you've got a sort of united front of Democrats who don't have to worry about this. And they'll be focusing their attacks on the Republicans who will remain divided, at least for the next two or so months.
1: And definitely kind of looking toward their base as well. Um, So that gives the Democrats time to see to kind of frame them as unreasonable and, um, you know.
0: Yeah, it's too far to the right.
1: Exactly. Too fringe, I guess, for, yeah. for Georgia. I mean,
0: if you think about it, the, the the primary electorate is already pretty core. You're already going after core conservatives or core, or core, or core um, Democrat liberals, progressives, however you want to put it. Um, but in the runoff, you're, you're it's even a smaller sliver of voters because there's even less attention to the runoff. And so, you know, presumably you're going after even more conservative voters. And so candidates will be forced to take even more conservative positions on issues like gun rights. On illegal immigration, on abortion, on culture issues.
1: Exactly, because not only you know if you're Casey Cagle or Brian Kemp, not only are you trying to capture the supporters of of people like Hunter Hill and Michael Williams and Clay Tippins, but you're also trying to convince them, hey, it's worth going out of your way on another Tuesday to go vote for me.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and and this is this is going to be a very bitter race, and. Last week, you were at Brian Kemp's party, and you saw yourself. I mean, he, he wasted no time in attacking Casey Cagle.
1: Immediately, immediately when he took to the stage, it became very clear where he was training his attention. He mentioned how, how the majority of Republican primary voters, when you looked at all five candidates, did not vote for Casey Cagle. He got about 38% of the vote. Um, based on what I saw, yeah, about anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, you know, the way he framed it is that Georgians do not want a career politician bought and sold by lobbyists and special interests, and how he's the the true conservative who um, is a man of the people. Um, I believe he said Georgia voters do not want a
0: suit, an empty suit. An Empty suit is what he said. Yeah. And but but you know, from the Kegel perspective, this is really interesting because Kegel knew. A few months ago, maybe if maybe about a month ago, that he wasn't going to make, he wasn't going to avoid a runoff. I mean, for all the money he was spending, his poll numbers pretty much plateaued at like high thirties, low forties, and which is what he got. He got about thirty nine percent of the vote. So they started shifting their attention to the race for number two, and about two weeks ago or so, he really made the decision that he wants Brian Kemp and not Hunter Hill. Why is that? And Hunter Hill is a former state senator. Who's uh, younger than he? I think he's about forty, so he's younger than Casey Cagle, who's in his fifties. Uh, but more importantly, he is a military veteran, a business leader, and he served only a couple years in public office and actually stepped down um, early uh, last year to run for for governor. So he could make the case. He could probably make a better case that he's an outsider, but also the military background. It's
1: hard to run against that and and to try and paint somebody as inexperienced or does not have good judgment. When you
0: served three combat tours in Iraq exactly. and Afghanistan, and I think they were a little bit worried about his economic argument because while he had the same positions as many of the other candidates on guns and legal immigration, he really focused his campaign mostly on his uh, economic policy, which was he wanted to cut the, the eliminate the state income tax over the next seven years and replace some of that $10 billion or so revenue with higher uh, sales taxes on some services and some other products. But overall, he said it would it would lower the tax burden. At the same time, he wanted to significantly sta- slash the state budget and double transportation spending. And if you're
1: Casey Cagle and you want to run on this economic argument, I'm gonna be the one to continue this legacy of Nathan Deal, continue our AAA bond rating, keeping Georgia as a destination for business, it's really hard to argue against this guy who says, hey, I wanna cut your taxes more. You almost have to kind of stake out your, you know, ground more in the middle, which is not what Casey Cagle wanted to do.
0: Exactly, and by getting someone like Brian Kemp in the in the runoff, it also takes away the whole outsider argument. I mean, there's, there's still going to be outsider arguments, but both of them, look, I mean, both of them were st- served in the state senate. Uh, they both were elected a statewide office. Brian Kemp twice, Casey Cagle three times. So it's a lot harder for them, for either one of them, to say there's some outsider when they have literally have off- offices under the gold dome. For almost a, uh, for, in, in, in for at least eight years in Kegel's case, for longer than that, um, so that I think plays into his favor too. Because if it was Hunter Hill, all you'd be hearing right now is I'm the outsider. He's the one with, with, with a vested interest in what happened in the Gold Dome. I'm the outsider. Still, though, you're already hearing that from Kemp too. You're hearing that Casey Cagle is a, a is a puppet, in his words. Of special interest groups,
1: and we might, you know, I'm expecting to see a lot more comparing and contrasting their records in um, public service. That's something Brian Kemp uh, told me when it became clear as the results were rolling in he'd be going against Cagle. Um, but we'll see, we'll see a lot, a lot more of that too. He also made made clear he wants to keep up this kind of tough talking, kind of blunt mm. persona that he's Chainsaws, developed. explosions,
0: explosions exactly, snaps, and and
1: definitely the the birth of a um, of a kind of campaign line he brought back. In his victory speech last week, the, the, yep, I just said that, which is what he said after he promised to round up illegal immigrants in his pickup truck. So I'm calling it right now. That is not the last time we're going to hear that line.
0: I, uh, I agree with you on that one. And I, I, I'm really interested to see what their first campaign ads will be. And again, if this was a three week runoff, they'd already be on air like now, um, but because it's a nine-week runoff, we might see we might we might not see any more uh, big TV funding for a little <laughs> bit.
1: What? How do you top explosions and pickup trucks and gun polishing? What's left?
0: I, I bet they have something up their sleeve. And and really, how how Cagle responds to that will be interesting because up to this point, he's run he's run a few sort of ominous ads about illegal immigration and dangers of of of, of criminal. Uh, uh, people who are criminals who are not here in the country illegally. Uh, but for the most part, he's been in factory floors talking about economic development. He's been talking about workforce training. He's been talking about jobs and, and the economy and and invoking uh, some of Governor Deal's initiatives. So it's been largely, you know, sunny stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, the Democrats on the Democratic side, it'll be really uh, interesting to see how Stacey Abrams responds to all this because um, – You know, as she said throughout that she's going to run as an unapologetic progressive, but we're going to watch to see whether or not she makes sort of overtures to the center some more, especially to try to take advantage of this nine weeks of Republican divisiveness.
1: Yeah, perhaps we'll see kind of a lull as she kind of regroups after this, or maybe not. Maybe it's an opportunity for her to point out how she thinks the Republicans are are going too far to the right on certain issues. Um, Perhaps it does create an opening.
0: And we already know that maybe maybe the biggest divide in Georgia politics, period, right now, um, is is over guns. I mean, with with both these parties taking diametrically opposed views on on Second Amendment rights, with the Republicans sort of bucking you know some some other Republicans in more more moderate states by saying they're not going to go anywhere towards more gun controls. Instead, they're going to push for broadening gun gun expansions, constitutional carry. Um, you know, rather than uh, new restrictions, uh, hardening schools, more more money for uh, for for police and law enforcement to investigate, um, you know, gun crimes, but less less restrictions. While we're having Democrats who have run for decades on NRA-friendly platforms, now fighting over who more vigorously opposes the National Rifle Association. You have Stacey Abrams, the candidate. Uh, the Democratic nominee for governor has, has called for a ban on assault rifles and um,
1: universal background check universal banning bump stops
0: repealing campus carry measure, which again would have just been unimaginable for for a candidate four years ago. Um, I asked Jason Carter, who was the candidate you know he ran as an NRA Democrat um, how he felt about it and he said that's basically you know the the party that this debate is shifting. Uh, I asked Stacey Abrams You know, would would her message have have actually worked four years ago? Were were Democrats just, you know, reading the wrong tea leaves? Were they were they wrong? And she said, uh, essentially, that you know that message worked for the party at the time, but the demographics of Georgia have changed the politics of georgia has changed the
1: politics of the country have changed we've just become a more polarized place
0: yeah and of course donald trump is now the president absolutely
1: twitter exists 24-hour cable news exists in general the sides have just hardened and that was put on such stark display at the wsb ajc debate uh more than a week ago now um you really saw and this was a few days after the santa fe texas high school shooting and and even within what was it less than 48 hours Both sides really dug in on that. And I think you can really see on the Republican side just how important gun rights were or are Mm -hmm. um, in in the biggest, probably the biggest gaffe of the campaign so far, if we want to call it that, or, or misstep probably when Hunter Hill, who came in third place. Um, mentioned how he wanted to raise the the age for buying it was it a handgun or all guns to twenty one yeah, from eighteen. I asked him at a
0: state bar conference just just after um, Florida lawmakers and I think Governor Rick Scott I think it was shortly after he agreed to 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 um, raise the minimum age limits of for buying certain firearms in Florida from eighteen to twenty one. I asked him if Georgia would follow suit, and he said he was he suggested he was open for it quickly. That clip got ping pong across the political spectrum and Michael Williams and then Casey Cagle started attacking him over that stance. And I think that the harshest attack was Clay Tippins who essentially branded him a, well, called him a traitor for his stance, ran an ad- uh, Benedict Arnold. Benedict <laughs> Arnold, asked him at a debate um, a couple of weeks ago, Atlanta Press Club debate, whether or not he stood by that ad, which, which received a lot of pushback from Republican leaders who had no affiliation, who had no stance in the race, who just said they were shocked and appalled by it. He said, no. He said, our, our Second Amendment rights are our most sacred rights, and this is what we're going to fight for. Um,
1: and we have no way of knowing just how much that stance hurt Hunter Hill going into the, the primary. But, but for a long time, it was seen as kind of neck and neck between him and Brian Kemp for that mm-hmm. second seed in the runoff. And
0: For a little bit. I mean, it was looked at as, as Kemp was the clear second. Uh, the, the Hill was the clear second place um, front runner, I guess, for the second spot. And uh, maybe he peaked too soon. I mean, he got Ted Cruz's endorsement, but then all the focus started shifting to Brian Kemp. Uh, especially after those two ads. Um, he, he essentially outdid um, Michael Williams's deportation bus thing and it shifted some of the attention uh, from, from him, some of the negative attention from him because it all went towards Michael Williams, who, of course, finished in last place with about 5% of the vote. Um, one of the things that is really striking to me about all this, though, in, in, the, in the sort of race to the right, is, is a debate that I moderated, Jeez, it was like in April, And um, it was up in Flowery Branch. And one of the questions, there were seven candidates on stage, and each of them had like a minute. So we couldn't really get in depth on too many things. But one of the questions I asked was one about what you would do to work with Democrats. And most of the candidates, including Casey Cagle, had some sort of answer about how they would work, about expanding medical marijuana or boosting public education, sort of like consensus issues. Brian Kemp was the lone exception. I mean, he was pretty unapologetic. He said, "He said, look, you know, my priority is not to go up there and work with Democrats. My priority is to fight for conservative values point blank. And if Democrats uh, want to stand against that, then that'll be their doom." Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. But that that answer struck me because I think that that's a good indication of where he stands. You know, he is not going to just like we, we don't think. You know, it looks just like Stacey Abrams hasn't moved towards the middle really yet um, on many issues. On some, of course, she will. But on many, Brian Kemp is unlikely to move that far towards the center either, because I think that answer says it all.
1: Yeah. And and as we've seen, Georgia's had two Republican governors in the modern era, but both of them were former Democrats. Um, willing to make deals sometimes when when necessary, but this race is so different because Kegel and, and Kemp are both lifetime Republicans, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, we've this is the first time. That's a great point. This is the first time we've ever had a Republican nominee. Um, well, this this could be the first time we have a Republican elected governor who is a lifelong Republican. You're right because both. Both Sonny Perdue and Nathan Deal had long histories as Democratic elected uh, officers in the state Senate. And for and Dio at the Congress. very
1: least had relationships with people who stayed Democrats mm-hmm. um, and, and had a little bit more of a friendly back and
0: forth. And had votes to defend in their own primaries, you know, that, that for the most part didn't really come back to haunt them. But exactly that, you know, had somewhat of centrist records, if not, you know, in some states, in, in some stances, maybe even described at the time as even liberal. Um you know, so, so this is a, a clear change, and Kegel, who was elected to the State Senate, I think it, in his late 20s, I think it was 28, um, was always a Republican, defeated a, a, a Democratic incumbent up in North Georgia to win his office. Uh, Brian Kemp did the same thing in Athens, defeated a, um, I think I covered it for the Red and Black, believe it or not, but defeated a, uh, a, a Democratic, uh, more liberal uh, uh, incumbent named Doug Haynes, jeez, like, I remember that, um, to win that, that race. And so both them, you know, both them came in as very strident conservatives and both them won state office on the same platform. Casey Cagle wins lieutenant governor against Ralph Reed, who, you know, at the time was the former Christian coalition leader uh, who is a national figure in his own right, who got big time endorsements. I covered this one, too, like Rudy Giuliani coming down. Um, Other national figures came down from Cagle almost out of nowhere. Uh, comes and defeats him and it wasn't even close back in 2006 and uses that to sort of propel his rise,
1: and just in terms of the kind of generation that that Kemp and Kegel are from, not only have they spent most of their adult lives in a, in a time when Republicans have been in power, but now we're we're operating at a at a time where it's so polarized. And like I mentioned, social media, 24-hour news cycle that only hardens each side. So it, it will be a very different kind of race this year. Yeah,
0: when you can brand any anyone a squishy whatever liberal Republican whatever it is based on one or two votes and look look we saw that in the democratic race over and over again evans tried to brand abrams as a as a republican you know secret uh, republican collaborator not just over hope but there was a vote that she sponsored that she voted for that would cut the cut early voting times from 45 days to 21 days um there was abrams did the same thing to evans over some banking legislation that never even got a hearing but would have would have uh would have raised the number of, uh, the, the amount of fees for for certain types of loans. She said that she would have that would have hurt, you know, working class families. It, it, this I know it happens in politics, but but it, it seems to be happening at a higher rate because of the polarization. Because you can brand someone uh, because of one or two votes, you can co- you can try to color their entire political career because of them.
1: What else is interesting and something to watch for sure is that as long as Kagel and Kemp have been in power, Republicans have controlled all the levers of power in the state. So they're used to always being in the majority. Whereas I believe when Stacey Abrams came to the legislature, mm-hmm. the Democrats were already in the minority. She's only ever operated being in the minority. I wonder if that kind of shifts the way that they deal with things on the yeah, trail, that, too. Yeah, that's
0: a really interesting point because um, in some ways she's unencumbered by, 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 by Democrats' uh, burdens of past. Right, I mean, Roy Barnes, when he ran for his comeback bid uh, in 2010, remembered the days of yore where Democrats controlled everything and, and had their say. She, Stacey Abrams never never experienced that in public office, so she's used to having to make deals. And when asked at debates and forums, "Okay, you want to expand Medicaid? Well, lawmakers have to vote on that. Um, you want to repeal campus carry? Well, lawmakers can have to vote have to vote for that. How do you realistically expect to do that?" And she says over and over again. I'm a dealmaker. I'm pragmatic, but I'm also a progressive. I will find a way. I mean, there'll be concessions. There'll be things that that if she's elected, that she will do that will really upset her base in order to get some. She'll of
1: these. probably have a Republican legislature to contend with. So it's it's certainly definitely having.
0: There is there there is not a single uh, political a uh, person in Georgia a political operative or whatever who thinks that Democrats will win the Georgia legislature and that's not because of democratic weakness the state is is you know is 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 more competitive than it has been in a long time based on the 2016 results it's because of gerrymandered districts
1: exactly and those lines will still be in place what for four more years
0: uh, through the, that well again goes everything goes back to the governor's race yep. it's another reason why the governor's race is so important because the next governor will likely have the final say on those maps, and we'll at least try to, you know, if it's a Democrat, we'll at least try to make it more competitive for some Democrats, and if it's a Republican, you're likely to see the lines uh, shaped to uh, reflect the current reality, uh, the current state uh, uh, state in the Georgia legislature, which is um, almost super majorities on both sides.
1: Yeah. How about some of these other down ballot races that we should be watching?
0: Yeah. I mean, just a few more, just to just to pay attention to. We've got the congressional um, down ballot races, which will be really sort of almost, I don't want to say crapshoots, but we don't know. There's very little polling for them. Um, In the 6th and 7th District, you both have two. You have two Democrats for each of them running against entrenched Republican incumbents who had, uh, in Karen Handel's case, no opposition, in Rob Woodall's case, only lightly funded opposition.
1: And these are districts where Democrats hadn't run serious challengers in years, much less multiple challengers. So that's what's so interesting about these races. Um, And as we mentioned in last week's podcast, whereas before you you saw Democrats kind of trying to go toward the middle in John Ossoff's case toward the end to try and win over independent voters— With what we're seeing, what we've seen so far in the 6th and 7th, that has not been the case. These candidates have all gone toward the left, um, and it'll be interesting to watch. What also is interesting is that all four of these uh, challengers in the 6th and the 7th who are tangling for the the Democratic nominations, all of them are political newbies. Mm -hmm. None of them really have name ID. Um, So, so, you know, they're going to be trying to define themselves and one another. Um, We can expect to see a lot on immigration. In the 7th District, we have... David Kim, a, uh, a businessman, he owns a test prep company. He's also the son of South Korean immigrants. He's made a point of going out and campaigning in, in um, the district's immigrant corridors mm-hmm. in, in Gwinnett and really not being shy to talk about that. Same in the 6th District with Kevin Abel, a South African immigrant who's who's also been there a very long time, talking about DACA and, and how he's really unhappy with Trump's policies. So we'll see that. We also have two women in each district as well. We have mm-hmm. Lucy McBath in the 6th, and we have Carolyn a Georgia State University professor running in the 7th. She's been able to to fundraise really well so far. She's even outraised Rob Woodall, um, the incumbent, over the last few months this year. It'll be interesting to see if she can keep that up.
0: And and Woodall knows that, you know, the the 7th district might be even more competitive than the 6th. Who knows? Um, But Woodall told you was that last year that if that district was purely built around Gwinnett County, it would already be Democratic. And Gwinnett County, this, that's, a, that's a shocking thing to say because Gwinnett has been a Republican stronghold since Jimmy Carter's presidency, but has only recently flipped to, to Democrats because of Don, Donald Trump.
1: It is, it is now majority-minority as of, I believe, 2015, 2016. And, and for the first time in decades, it voted for a Democrat for President Hillary Clinton. Um, but the district also does include a pretty broad swipe of, uh, swipe of Forsyth County. Which is very conservative. Still
0: very conservative. I think Trump won Forsyth by about 80% of the vote. So that shows you um, you know, how, how deeply, how ruby red, I should say, it is.
1: And talking to Rob Woodall over the last few months, he's indicated mm-hmm. he's not planning to change his strategy at all um, based on how he's run in past years. He's an Unapologetic supporter of Donald Trump. He talks about how a lot of the policies that that Trump, uh, you know, has advanced have been really helpful to the Seventh District. He talks all the time about the tax bill um, and the benefits the the booming economy have had um, in that that part of the country. And he's not shy about um, Trump in any way, shape, or form.
0: He's also lower profile than, let's say, his neighbors. I mean, look, the Sixth District produced Johnny Isaacson, Newt Gingrich, Tom, Tom Price. Price. Now, Karen Handel, who's, who's lower profile, but still she won the most expensive U.S. house contest in the nation, And everyone in the
1: country knows her name. And but everyone knows her name. That's worked to Rob Woodall's benefit in the past. But at the same time, he's never really had to run a real race since he won his seat in, in 2010. So he really is having to step it up, particularly in a national environment where Dems feel energized and are starting to look around and think, hmm, where can we put our money and our resources? So I think what he's trying to project is, is kind of a, you know, a lot of confidence. Like, nothing's different. Don't, you know, you don't need to sink your money here. This is still a Republican district. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how these Democratic challengers try and chip away at that.
0: And we will be watching every twist and turn of all these races. tomorrow. thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. For more election results and stories, head to AJC.com and PoliticallyGeorgia.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at bluestein and at AJC on Washington. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And thank you as always for listening.
1: Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song.